So Colossians 1, 15 through 23. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation? For in him were all things created, in the heavens and upon the earth, things visible and things invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things have been created through him and unto him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it was the good pleasure of the Father that in him through all the fullness of the fullness dwell, and through him to reconcile all things unto himself, having made peace through the, bo- the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things upon the earth or things in the heavens, and you being in, times, in time past alienated, and enemies in your mind and your evil works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and without blemish and unreprovable before him. If so, be that ye continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and not move away from the hope of the gospel which ye heard, which, have, which was preached in all creation under heaven, whereof I, Paul, was made a minister. Thank you. So yesterday, my family got a pretty cool gift in the mail as a thank you for uh, watching their, this family's dog for them for a couple of days. They sent us boxes full of meat, a lot of steak, which I was super excited about. And uh, in the very near future, I plan to season these steaks to perfection. Uh, filet mignons and put them on the grill and grill them to perfection medium rare for myself medium for the rest of my family and uh, as Marianne will probably work up some wonderful vegetables maybe a nice baked potato we're going to have a feast together at the Evans house I'm not going to tell you when that is we're going to do it by ourselves and enjoy it now I want you to imagine with me that we uh, sit down to eat that incredible delicious medium rare perfectly seasoned filet mignon and my beloved children all get up and they go to the refrigerator and they pull out a bottle of Heinz ketchup and they come back and they sit down at the table and I watch this whole thing unfold tragically and horribly with fear in my face and anger in my eyes and they dump ketchup all over my precious perfect steaks so that you know the ketchup bottle makes that noise that we all get embarrassed by there's so much ketchup that gets put on what is it that you think my response will be well as a godly and loving father of course my response will simply be steak does not need any add-ons especially my steak you should know that by now you know we all love to add on to Jesus in our spiritual lives. Whether we admit it or not, that is true. And adding on anything to Jesus is similar to adding ketchup onto a perfectly cooked, beautiful steak. Because like a steak, Jesus does not need anything added on to it. The longer you've been a follower of Jesus, if you're here and you are a Christian, I bet the more you have seen ways in which Christians try to add things on top of Jesus. If you go to a Christian bookstore, for example, which I would actually not encourage you to do, just take my word for it. Uh, If you go to a Christian bookstore, you'll find all kinds of things that promise to give you real spiritual growth. 
There's the Daniel plan. There's um, the blood red moons. There's the prayer of Jabez. There's all kinds of different ways to go deeper. And I want to just argue that that's been around since this letter to the Colossians was written. In fact, that's what the Christians in Colossae were dealing with, the constant tendency we all have to look for additives to Jesus. The Colossians thought they needed to move on. They needed to go deeper, as we saw last week. That was the teaching that they were exposed to, and that's part of the reason that Paul wrote this letter to that church. And so in light of that situation, Paul prayed, we saw last week, for the church in verses 9 through 14. He prayed that they would know God's will, that they would have spiritual wisdom and understanding, that they would know Jesus and the deliverance brought through Jesus' blood shed on the cross. And in light of that prayer, Paul, here in verse 15, enters into a description of who Jesus really is. And I think this is one of the great high points of all of the New Testament. It's probably the most famous part of Colossians. It's really a great poem of praise to Jesus. It's all about the supremacy, the matchless worth of Jesus Christ. And it's hard to do these verses justice. The language is so soaring and grandiose and magnificent. So I'll just pray, my prayer has been, that this is a joy for us to contemplate together in worship this morning. These verses, friends, these verses are about the supremacy of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so to understand them, I want to break these verses into four parts for you. We're going to look at Jesus's relationship to God, his relationship to the universe, his relationship to the church, and then fourthly, his relationship to you. So first, this verse, uh, these verses tell us about Jesus's relationship to God. Look in verse 15. Paul starts by saying, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. What does that mean? It means that Jesus, and in Jesus, the nature and the being of God has been perfectly revealed. It means that Jesus makes the invisible God visible. This goes along with other important parts of the New Testament. For example, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 18, tells us that no one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 3, tells us that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. So Jesus shows us what God is really like. That's the nature of his relationship to God. He is the image of the invisible God. So when God sends the Son, Jesus, into the world, the Son who is from all eternity one with the Father, who has forever, even before there was a universe, been gazing at the face of the Father in perfect love and community, Jesus is able to say, John 14, he who has seen me has seen the Father. If you want to become a, a better teacher of Christian theology and of the Bible, advice I've received in my life is to begin by teaching third graders. Begin by teaching third graders the Bible, and the reason that you should do that is because third graders will ask the questions that we still have, except they're not too scared to ask them. So if you teach a third grader this verse, they'll say, what does God look like? 
And if you've been trained in our particular tradition, the catechism answer will say, God is a spirit, and he has no body like we do, but that's not going to satisfy a third grader. That satisfies you adults. You say, oh, that sounds great, Pastor. But a third grader says, I don't like that. That doesn't make sense to me. If God is real, shouldn't we be able to see him? And then you get frustrated because teaching third graders is difficult. Thank you, Lord, for the people upstairs right now teaching our third graders. And teaching third graders is actually helpful because they point us to the reality of what this text says. This text says we can see God. God is made visible. He's perfectly revealed in Jesus of Nazareth. So listen, listen to me. If you are uncertain, which we all are at times, about what the real God is like, if you aren't sure about his character, the Bible's answer, the answer of the Christian faith, is always, always to look to Jesus Christ. Jesus tells us and shows us what God is really like. And I want to tell you that is unique. Of all the faiths in the world, that's unique to the Christian faith. The Christian faith says that the real God doesn't just give us information about him. That, for example, is the teaching of Islam. Islam says that the Quran is a deposit of information about what God is like and how God likes things. But when the real God gives us his word, he gives us his very self. For the Son is the word of God, the exact representation of his being, the perfect revelation of the Father. If God just dropped a book from heaven, he could keep us at a sort of distance that we might expect of an infinite being. But he doesn't do that. The very word of God, who is God, comes to us and dwells among us. That's what this text teaches. Some of us who are Christians fall sometimes into a trap of thinking that Jesus is great. I love Jesus. Jesus is awesome. Jesus is sweet and mild and kind and patient. But God the Father, he's scary. God the Father kind of creeps me out or weirds me out or makes me nervous. But this text tells us that the Trinity is never out of sync. God so loved the world that he gave his son to die for us. What you see in Jesus is exactly what the Father is like. So the question that the text asks you is, do you see the Father in that way? Do you know that you are his beloved? You are his beloved in Christ, and he is yours in Christ. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That's his relationship to God. Secondly, Paul tells us about Jesus' relationship to the universe. Verses 16 and 17. And there's two things we read about Jesus' relationship to the universe. First, verse 15, Paul says, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that Jesus is the first created thing? The first creature? No, that's not what it means. Paul clarifies it in the very next clause. He says, verse 16, For by Jesus all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or or authorities, all things were created through him. So Jesus is not a creature. Jesus is creator. So his relationship to the universe is such that the universe was made by him. So when Paul says Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, he means that Jesus is preeminent. 
that Jesus has supremacy over all creation. In the ancient world, and in many parts of the world still today, the firstborn inherited everything. I actually like that idea as a firstborn. That's not a bad way to go, in my opinion. The firstborn inherited everything and no one else got anything. And that's what God is saying about Jesus. Everything was made by Jesus Christ. And look, also Paul says, everything, you need to hear this one, was made for Jesus Christ. Verse 16, all things were created for him. That is, that is a vision of the universe that is unavoidably and radically Christocentric. This universe exists at every second for Jesus Christ. The Marianas Trench exists for Jesus Christ. Mount Everest exists for Jesus Christ. The Andromeda Galaxy and every galaxy exists for Jesus Christ. You were made for Jesus Christ. Everything that exists, everything that has been made exists to bring praise and honor to Jesus, to magnify the infinite worth of who he is, to reflect back to him his own awesomeness and holiness and goodness. That is how great Jesus is. This world, your world, your life is not about you. Your life is about Jesus and his supremacy. He is the center. As Paul tells us elsewhere, from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory both in the church and for everywhere else forever. Amen. Jesus made everything. But secondly, Paul tells us something else amazing about Genesis' relationship, Jesus' relationship to the universe. Excuse me. Verse 17. In him, all things hold together. In him, all things hold together. That's the second thing we learn about Jesus' relationship to the universe. N.T. Wright and F.F. Bruce, two great New Testament scholars, translate that verb, holds together, cohere. I love that translation. In him, all things cohere. What an amazing statement. (laughs) That is a mind blower. If Jesus were to remove his hand from creation, even for a moment, it would disintegrate back into the darkness, back into the nothingness. Day by day, this universe is sustained by the Lord Jesus. Think about it like this. Um, Over the Christmas holiday, Marianne, my wife, and uh, her mom a little bit, and Ainsley, my daughter, a little bit, uh, made a jigsaw puzzle. They put together a jigsaw puzzle. It was, you know, a pretty substantial jigsaw puzzle, 500 or 1,000 piece puzzle. And once that puzzle was completed, imagine, now this didn't happen because my wife knows better, but imagine that Marianne asked me to take the puzzle from the table into another room. So here's how I would have probably done that. I would have tried to grab it with my hands like this and gently <laughs> guide it from the table in the dining room upstairs into the playroom or wherever else we need it to be without a single piece falling apart. And I put the odds on that happening in Vegas at like a thousand to one, right? Very small chance that that's going to happen. That's an image for how Jesus, though, is holding all things together. 
At every moment, he's making sure this world doesn't fall apart. That's what Jesus does. But unlike me with a jigsaw puzzle, Jesus does it perfectly and confidently for the entire cosmos. Friends, that has a massive consequence for your life, no matter what you are, no matter what you do, no matter where you're from. It has massive consequences for your vocations. Just for example, what that means if you're engaged in intellectual work or academic work. It means that all of your explorations into the way this world is made make sense and they make progress only because all things cohere in Jesus. Uh, if you're a physician, if you're a doctor, and you study the human body and how to make it well, the only way any of it makes sense how the body can heal itself, how it can replenish itself and send the right cells to the right places to fight the right viruses and infections is because all things cohere in Jesus. If you work with your hands, if you enjoy woodworking or art or plumbing or building your own home with your bare hands or redesigning your kitchen, it means that the reason those things fit together is because everything is sustained by and coheres in Jesus. Listen, because Jesus holds everything together, because in Jesus everything coheres, even the humblest and simplest Christian knows something about everything, even though he or she doesn't know everything about anything. You follow that? Every Christian knows something about everything, although he never knows everything about anything. As one old hymn writer put it, something is expressed in every hue that Christless eyes have never seen. Something's expressed in every hue that Christless eyes have never seen. When you become a Christian, you can appreciate, I hope, that the one you came to trust in personally turns out to actually be the creator of the universe who upholds all the world by his power. And so instead of thinking just that your sins have been forgiven, great though that is, you discover that in Jesus you've entered a whole new universe of exploration. All is now open to you. That's Jesus' relationship to the universe. Paul praises him for that. And then he moves in verse 18 into the second half of this great song and tells us about Jesus' relationship to the church. Look there, verse 18. He, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn, remember that word, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. You see what Paul's saying? Not only is Jesus preeminent because he's the agent of creation, Jesus is preeminent because he's the agent of recreation. He's the agent of redemption. Paul says he's the firstborn of creation, and then he says here, he's the firstborn of recreation through the power of his resurrection. That's what that verse means. He's the firstborn from the dead. That means that Jesus has ushered the reality of his future kingdom into the present through his bodily resurrection. He's brought the future into the present by overcoming death. Surely you remember what Neil Armstrong said when he was the first man to ever walk on the moon. Anybody remember? That's one small step for man, one what? I don't even need to preach. I mean, y'all got it down. One giant leap for mankind. Now that's a great statement. I wonder how long Armstrong 
thought about that one before he said it. And what he meant, of course, is that in his step on the moon, he had opened the way for all of humanity, for all mankind to explore those regions of space. He had broken through for us into a new order of reality. That's what Paul's saying about our Lord Jesus. Jesus' resurrection breaks into a new order of reality. I like to imagine him after he's folded up the grave clothes in the tomb and sets them on the stone where his dead body just a minute ago laid and moves the tomb out of the way and walks out saying to himself, that's one small step for me, but one giant leap for mankind. And so we all live, we all live as Christians in the power of Jesus' already accomplished resurrection. That's why he's the head of the church. He's the head of the church by virtue of his resurrection from the dead. Paul says he's the head because he gives the church her life. He is the source of our life. And his resurrection marks the triumph over all the forces that hold men and women and children in bondage. Jesus, in his resurrection, breaks every chain. He is preeminent, preeminent in his resurrection. And through his death and resurrection, verse 20, he will reconcile to himself all things, all things, whether in heaven or in earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. That hints at the real story of this world. It hints at the real story of your life. The real story of the world is that through our rebellion against God, everything has fallen into ruin. This world is disintegrating in corruption. And all of us, in various ways, experience that reality. That's why Paul, in Romans chapter 8, can say that even the creation is subject to futility. It all groans. It all labors under bondage, waiting for Jesus to come back. You've experienced that in countless ways, even this week. In your physical, emotional, spiritual, and relational lives. The truth of the gospel says that all who trust in Jesus will one day break through the bondage of decay into newness, into the reintegration of all things. Whoever is in Christ is a new creation. The old has passed, the new has come. And one day, all will be made new. One day, Jesus will make the entire universe what is true of him now. Perfect, resurrected defeated sin. One day Jesus will bring full and final peace. He will put back together again everything that in our lives and in this world is so hopelessly broken. Don't you want that? Come on, don't you long for that? Even our world's best resolutions, even the most skilled politicians and leaders can only in this life bring proximate justice and proximate peace. They don't heal the wounding. They don't really heal the wounding we all experience in this life. I read this week about uh, a boy and his father. And um, when the boy would be bad or disobedient or naughty, anytime he did something bad, his dad would take a piece of wood and he would hammer a nail into the piece of wood every time his son did something wrong. And one day, the boy in a moment of keen intuition, asked his dad, why? Why do you do that? 
And his dad explained it. And then the boy decided, you know what? I'm going to behave better. And each time the boy did something good, the father would remove a nail from the board. And over time, as the child's behavior improved, all of the nails came out. And for a second, the child felt really good about it. But then he realized the nails were gone, but the holes still remained. That's what our world's like, isn't it? That's what our lives are like. Even when we get justice or get peace, holes will always remain. The gospel is that Jesus is going to make perfect peace. He is going to reconcile all things. Everything will be made whole. Everything will be made right again. Jesus is going to, in his marvelous wisdom and power, put everything back together. He will bring everything under his headship and lordship. And one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's the sense in which he will pacify, make peace of all things, whether in heaven or on earth. Paul tells us about Jesus' relationship to God, his relationship to the universe, his relationship to the church, and then lastly, quickly, Jesus' relationship to you. Paul steps back, in a sense, in verse 21. He steps back from just the soaring, incredible language of 15 through 20, and he personalizes this. He describes Jesus' relationship to you. Look in verse 21. And you, Colossians, you, people of Christ church, here this morning, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Listen, none of these things we've been talking about make any sense or really mean anything at all for you if it is not personal. Jesus is the image of the invisible Father. Jesus is the sustainer of the universe. Jesus is the head of the church, but first, Jesus has to be your Savior. The truth is that this Jesus that Paul's writing about here, who made everything and for whom all things exist, this Jesus who is the head and source of the life of the church, who entered into resurrection life as the first fruits from the dead, this Jesus in whom dwells the fullness of God, who reconciles all things to himself, this Jesus gave himself up to make peace with you personally, to reconcile you to God. Jesus, the king of all things, died His body was broken. His blood was shed to transfer you from hostility towards himself and towards his father. To take you from evil deeds to a position of holiness and blamelessness to being above reproach before him. And Jesus did this by taking the guilt and the punishment of our sin on himself at the cross. And by giving you his righteousness and spotless record before God. And so, and so this morning, it's true that because of Jesus, there is no more alienation from God. There's acceptance with God. It's true that if you believe because of Christ, there's no more hostility towards God. There's home in God. Because of Jesus, we are no longer under the sway of evil and wickedness. 
We're under the sway, under the banner of his great love and forgiving grace. All of this has been given to us freely by God in Christ. That's the glory of the message of the gospel, the supreme and preeminent Son of God died for sinners. We only enter the realities described here by coming to him as our Savior. When we realize that we personally need to be reconciled to God, to be friends with God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Have you been reconciled? A man who was a part of the uh, Southern African Commission for Peace and Justice after apartheid is quoted as saying in dealing with the travesty and loss of apartheid in South Africa that reconciliation costs something usually death. Reconciliation costs something, usually death. Reconciliation doesn't just happen when we decide to feel good about ourselves and the person we need to be reconciled with. Reconciliation costs. The gospel tells us that that is true of our reconciliation with God. It costs something. And the good news is that the cost has been covered by Jesus, not by you. He's supreme. He's preeminent, and this supreme preeminent one is our loving Savior. We need no add-ons to Jesus. Don't put ketchup on a steak. The steak is good enough. Jesus is all you need. He's enough for us.